0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to New Books in Diplomatic History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Andrew Pace, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Zachary Jonathan Jacobson about his new book on Nixon's madness and emotional history, which was just published this year in 2023 by Johns Hopkins University Press. Zachary Jonathan Jacobson, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Andrew. Zachary, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself.
1: Well, I'm a Midwestern boy. I grew up in Detroit and I did my undergrad at Yale and I got my PhD in U.S. history with a focus on the Cold War at Northwestern University. I teach at Merrimack College in northern Massachusetts and and live in
0: Cambridge. Well, it's great to have you on the show. What got you interested in Nixon's emotions and emotional history?
1: Well, <clears throat> the madman theory that we're going to discuss was a, a little snippet of a idea that I'd heard about when I uh, was doing a master's course before I went to grad school. I was trying to see if I wanted to go into, uh, commit to a PhD and i took a master's course at George Washington in Washington, D.C., and the professor mentioned this madman theory, which was odd, which was intriguing, this idea that Nixon had in which he would act so crazy that he would intimidate his foes, that he would act the part of a madman, and it It kind of got lodged in my head. I didn't think about it for about 10, 15 years then. And then President Donald Trump was elected and he started to speak about fire and fury he would rain down on North Korea. And he started to speak in this way that sounded crazy, but you couldn't quite tell if he was bluffing, if he really believed what he was saying or whether it was a ruse. And it seemed to me just like we had talked about Nixon, this question of was he pretending to be crazy, was he really mad, had just popped up in the news again. And I ended up writing an opinion piece for Washington Post, developed into
0: a journal article, developed into the book. So you start your book with uh, this madman theory, this this conversation between Richard Nixon and his chief of staff H.R. Bob Haldeman in 1968. Can you tell us about that conversation and how it frames your book? So it's uh, the summer of 1968.
1: Uh, Nixon is about to be elected president. It's a it's a tight race, but he's trying to plan what he's what his foreign policy might be. And what we have to remember is that Lyndon Johnson had not even run for the re-election in 1968, the war in Vietnam had been going so badly and had discredited him. So it was an open seat, and Nixon had been running with on a platform of peace with honor. And the question was how to finally take the rational route in Vietnam. There had been miscalculations, over-eagerness, arrogance, stupidity, all these misplays in Vietnam that had dragged the United States further, further into a quagmire, and it was a question of how to ramp down, how to wind down the war. And Nixon's pacing the beach with his chief of staff, Haldeman. He says, I have a different idea. What about taking the irrational route? What about, instead of winding down the war, what about ramping it up? He says, what if I act crazy? What if I act so crazy that the North Vietnamese believe that I might try to annihilate them? What if I pretend that I'm going to send all of our nuclear weapons and obliterate them? Would they back down? If I act irrational, if I show that I'm going to risk nuclear war can we finally get the North Vietnamese at the negotiating table? And he talks about this acting crazy as his madman theory, this idea of performing madness, of of taking on so much risk that the enemy can't understand whether the United States is, is acting logically or not.
0: So Nixon was going to act crazy rather than simply being crazy, I suppose, uh, which you suggest is a, a mask that he was wearing. But in part one of your book, and actually in the first chapter, you talk about the acting life of Richard Nixon and these different masks that he would wear throughout his career. What were some of those masks that he wore before he became president?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. We usually think of someone like John F. Kennedy as one of these Hollywood types. We think of Ronald Reagan as the ultimate actor president, the literal actor. But Nixon turned out to be the great performer of them all. It seemed that no one could distinguish which was the real Nixon. He would come and become a new Nixon and then transform to a new Nixon and then new Nixon. And the public, even confidants, seemed to not be able to figure out which one was the real Nixon. He began his career as a staunch anti-communist, prosecuting for the House Un-American Activities Committee, the communist spy, Alger Hiss, But then he would transform on his campaigns and instead of being the fierce prosecutor, he would become the humble average Joe just trying to come to Washington to uh, out the corrupt bureaucrats. Then once he's vice president, he transforms for Eisenhower, sends him on these international tours and he becomes the worldly diplomat. Once it's president, he becomes not the the anti the staunch anti communist, but ends up making peace with the communists in China, and um, a, a, a nuclear uh, a nuclear uh, armaments agreement with the Soviet Union. Only then he becomes a crook, and in his retirement he becomes an elder statesman so what we see is staunch anti communist average joe worldly diplomat progressive over and over he's reinventing himself over and over he's he seems to be putting on a different different guys and what we have in nixon is is a man who seems to constantly be hiding he's a man of the cloakroom a man of shuttle diplomacy of tricky plays he's also a man who's very clumsy and very self-conscious of that, he's he's constantly trying to hide. His wife Pat would describe that he could not even hammer a nail. So it's a he's a very difficult f- figure to pin down. What who is who is the man behind the mask? Who is the real Nick, Richard Nixon?
0: You also suggest that Nixon was a sentimentalist, which I don't think is something that a lot of people think of when they picture. Uh, Richard Nixon uh, but you talk about his sentimental life what what made nixon a sentimental man
1: it's hard to say what made him sentimental it he was constantly talking about the need for heart and and in his speeches we think of him more in his younger career as this firebrand but he actually elicited a great Deal of trying to connect with the American people and not speak logically, but and not even speaking of these kind of grand, lofty ideals like Kennedy. He he tried to uh develop these kind of homespun ideas, and and we see it really um connected to his childhood. He is, is a man who grew up um in and out of poverty. His mother uh, he would always describe as a Quaker saint, but by all accounts was a pretty withholding woman who would never say "I love you," who um, was known for her silent treatments who could which would last days. His father uh, was a hard worker Horatio Alger type who um, really pulled the family out of the poorhouse. But he also was known for being abusive and for his outbursts. He had Nixon had two brothers who died young of tuberculosis, and so he had a terribly trying childhood. And what's so remarkable is that he never speaks of it like that. He's just is willing to speak of it idyllically. He's just willing to sentimentalize his childhood, and it's. Is as if he's not able to deal with the complexity of, of what was going on, as if the only way to push him forward was to romanticize his, his life as ideal, a man who is struggling to deny difficulty. And it is, in some case, in some sense, where, where we started, where it's another guy, the sentimental is another guy's, it's another denial of the complex, it's another role that he's he's trying to trying incessantly to play.
0: How does Pat Nixon fit into this emotional history? Nixon's wife?
1: Pat is a lot like like Dick, she is a strong, hardworking woman who grew up even poorer than Nixon, who uh, had uh even more abusive father, whose mother died young. And she works her way, works her way up, pulls, pulls, her, pulls her way up by the bootstraps, and, but takes on levels of propriety and has a certain sternness to her. They end up calling her plastic pet. And she is known for the guises that she takes, that she will not allow certain closeness to her to be um, pierced. And so that she and Nixon form a pair in this sense. They they take on the world together as never re- willing to seemingly reveal their true their true faces. Who is the real Pat, just like who is the real Nixon, becomes a theme throughout
0: um, her adult life. Well, and as you mentioned earlier, she made a, a comment that Nixon couldn't even handle uh, couldn't ha- hammer in a nail properly um, and I was really fascinated by your descriptions of Nixon's clumsiness and awkwardness. How did those characteristics play out in his working roles? I think you see with Nixon this
1: this this sense it it it's it's this combination of a man who, wants and desires a closeness and intimacy he gathers around him for his whole career these kind of close-knit groups of, of a male cohort that he talks incessantly to and this is what you hear on the tapes hours and hours um chewing over the same material trying to think of this option versus this option versus this option um but be on the, the flip side of the, this kind of intimacy is that he denies it he he says that he's a loner and he at any point he steals away to the executive office building away from the oval office that he can't handle being in a crowd he's he's known to be a president of the memo rather than face to face that he won't fire anyone in person that bob haldeman actually invents in some senses the modern uh, role of the chief of staff as the go-between between the president and the administration to shield Nixon from the, from the rest of um, the White House and the executive branch. So what you see in Nixon is a man who's deeply involved in every political aspect of his presidency, but seems to be hiding and needing to have his space at the same time.
0: So, in part one of your book, you talk about uh, Nixon's acting, his different roles, these different masks that he had throughout his career. And then in part two, you shift to talk about uh, Nixon's madness. Um, and you, you begin by dissecting Nixon's first campaign for Congress in 1946. What happened in that campaign that is so vital for understanding Nixon's political and emotional history?
1: I think what we see is we see the in coach example of Nixon using madness. And this is part of the madman theory, right? Which is the question is, is not, oh, to slough it off that he is a mad conspiracy monger, that he was a rager, that we can just dismiss him as a. paranoid person. In his first campaign, he uses the paranoia. He makes the madness useful. He wields it. And what he does um, against uh, the congressman incumbent, Jerry Voorhees, is that he tries to hook him as a communist sympathizer, if not a communist himself. And he plays on these these fears coming out of world war two of a red scare and this is before mccarthy this is this is kind of a proto red scare uh, at the early stages that he is going to scare the population he's going to wield this this fear um to
0: to down his opponent and it it works Nixon wasn't the only one to wield madness to his advantage, though. You point out that Nixon drew on a long tradition uh, involving John Milton, Machiavelli, uh, and Hamlet, even. How have other figures used madness, and what did Nixon glean from those historical examples?
1: Well, it's, it's, it's this really interesting trope that we have that seems to resonate century after century after century, in that this sense that you would think that madness, you would think that rage, you would think that paranoia, stupidity, all these things are crippling, that these leave the individual infirmed, that this irony that madness can be useful seems completely nonsensical and yet if we look at the western canon we see it played out over and over and over so i point to something like samson in the bible who calls down um fury from the from god becomes enraged and pulls down the pillars of the temple to kill hundreds we see it in someone in in the in the fo- mad fools in Shakespeare who wear this kind of nonsensical garb, speak in riddles and rhymes that that on on first blush are illogical, but they turn fair versus foul and foul fair. They through illogic uh, d- demonstrate re- tr- the truth itself that that the madness becomes the cipher. For what is real, the madness becomes useful. The madness becomes something that you can see. It brings great strength or great sight or great foresight, that it is
0: a boon rather than an infirmity. And Nixon's rage and fury, you point out, wasn't just a, a projection of emotional instability as president. In chapter five, you also make the case that he was literally mad. He was filled with rage. Uh, what made Nixon angry, and uh, how did he hate, as one deputy described it?
1: I think. I mean, I think it's 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 something that I am very sensitive to. The complexity in the book, which is that easy causation is very is very readily thrown around but is elusive and what you see rather than being able to pin down what makes nixon so filled with grudges and grievances what makes him so seemingly unhappy with his lot is that you see generations of different historians trying to grapple with and 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 with By bringing the, these different theories together, you see uh, a battle of ideas to try to understand where this grievance and, and madness and rage, paranoia, conspiracy theory comes from. But you see that each of them is, is, is not quite enough. Each of them is explanatory to a degree, but has to be um, uh, that that comes up short to another degree. So for example, we have in the 1970s, in the first draft of of, of, of history for Nixon, these psycho historians who are trying to understand Nixon simply through his early childhood. So they look at that troubling childhood, they look at the difficult mother, they look at the difficult father, they look at the two brothers dying of tuberculosis, and they say, Look, of course, he's aggrieved because he grew up in these trying households. But very quickly you say, well, plenty of men have withholding mothers. Plenty of men have abusive fathers. They don't all end up being Richard Nixon. So that you really start to get into the depth of, of the kind of emotional history and personality theory that, that suggests that It's far more complex than just pointing to simple causations uh, to understand, as opposed to trying to appreciate the unsettling psyche
0: of Nixon. Right. And of course, Nixon was trying to harness this power of unpredictability, uh, particularly in his foreign policy, which I, I wanna talk more about. Uh, but game theorists in the 50s and 60s had examined the the risk in the nuclear age of uh, brinkmanship, uh, going to the edge of the abyss, uh, unpredictability. Uh, how did Nixon draw from or build on the work of those uh, theorists and scholars? So
1: there's no evidence that Nixon... Drew on them directly, it more seems to be something in the air about the Madman theory. And this is what's so interesting is it is it seems that the Madman theory, this this idea of taking on enormous amounts of risk uh, in order to uh, bully one's way uh, is something that came up immediately in the nuclear age, as if. The madman theory is endemic to the nuclear age as if you can't have a nuclear age without it or you can't have it without the nuclear age so even we haven't had times where nuclear weapons were invented without someone developing the idea of feigning madness to use them um, to bluff their way on at the at the negotiating table you have early on, it's it's very interesting that game theorist Thomas Schelling came up with the metaphor of two individuals chained together on the cliff's edge, each trying to win a prize, but can only win if the other is pushed uh, uh, downhill. Now, neither is going to jump themselves. And the problem is they're chained together so that if they push the other, they go too. And the question is, how do you gain the prize? How do you um, make the ultimate move to kill your opponent to win? And what Schelling suggested is you start to dance on the cliff's edge. You start to take on risk. You start to act mad. And if you can convince your opponent that you're illogical, that if you can convince your opponent that you're willing to dance um, and pull yourselves both over, that, that your opponent will eventually back down. So he early on develops this idea of acting irrationally. And throughout the Cold War, up until today, you see uh, with Kim Jong-il in North Korea, this willingness, Vladimir Putin saying that he's gonna put nuclear weapons in Belarus and then in Ukraine, this willingness to bluff on the international scene and to push all your um, chips in the middle to get your opponent to back down, even if what you are doing is risking nuclear uh,
0: destruction on both sides. So how did Nixon actually implement those ideas in his foreign policy? What what did the madman theory actually look like uh, in, in American diplomacy?
1: So what you see is once Nixon enters office, just that idea that he was batting around with in 1968, he, he does implement, unbeknownst to the American people, he um, goes forth with the madman theory And um, goes on uh, high level nuclear alert, sending B-52s loaded with nuclear weapons circling the Arctic. He sends um, ships to uh, menace North Vietnam and tries to get the North Vietnamese to believe that their ultimate day has come. It doesn't work. The Soviets and the North Vietnamese don't buy it. They don't back down. But Nixon has taken that risk. He's risked that the Soviets or the Chinese are going to get word of this and are are going to preempt it. But he doesn't stop there. And he uh, he again goes on nuclear alert during a civil war in, in Japan during the arab, Arab-Israeli arab crisis in 1973, sometimes called the Yom Kippur War, during uh, one of the wars between India and Pakistan. He's constantly going on these nuclear alerts, um, sending, sending uh, forces that will threaten the ultimate uh, attack. And his attempts are usually to keep the Soviets out, usually their bluffs, to make sure the soviets don't back their own allies and he keeps doing it because while we now know with more information from the soviet side that the soviets didn't send their more support because they basically didn't have more support to send nixon took it that he would he was successful so that he keep Continually played the nuclear bluff because he, he thought that he was, he was keeping the Soviets out of, uh, these international fights. So in
0: 1972, while the Vietnam war is still raging and Nixon is, um, still projecting this instability, this unpredictability, uh, he makes this famous trip to China. And you talk a lot about the roles that he juggled on that trip, but you also suggest that, in effect, Nixon's madness sort of met its match in uh, Mao Zedong and Zhu Enlai. What happened on that trip?
1: He did. it's It's a great turn of phrase. He did meet his match, and what he sees is in some sense, the inversion of the madman theory. He sees an alternative. He sees instead of the ultimate raging, um, he sees in the Chinese what he emulates in the Chinese leaders is what he thinks of is k- ultimate control. Is that instead of <clears throat> instead of letting loose, they, they can just snap their fingers and have ultimate power. And he he greatly emulates this. And you see this kind of split in him in Nixon, he at times emulate he at times uh, wants to be like the Soviets, like Brash Nikita Khrushchev or Leonid Brezhnev pushing their way around. And at times he wants to be the ultimate controlled Chinese. They have he's there's a particular episode when he is set to visit the Great Wall of China and it snows and and um, Zhou Enlai immediately gets hundreds if not a thousand to clear the path so the president of the United States can go on his tour of the great wall of china and nixon is just astounded and it's not an effusion of anger it's it's the control that he that nixon is
0: so astounded by and is so drawn to so knowing that nixon wore all of these different masks and played all of these different roles i think it's more tempting than ever perhaps to ask will the real richard nixon please stand up do you think that's a fair question and do, do you think that that's a question that can be adequately answered
1: i think it's a i think it's a great question because i think it continues to spur us forth i think that what's particularly interesting about nixon is we have these tapes and it's become so tempting it's it's like a a fetish this idea that we have his real private side that we can finally find out the real Nixon because we've heard him say it behind closed doors and he curses like a sailor and he speaks his mind and and yet I think that it's a trick I think that it's 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 a trap to believe that we speak our true mind simply behind closed doors Nixon was a was a man who spent days preparing uh, major speeches. He wanted to get his true thoughts in the public, really, really directly uh, worked out. And in some sense, we can see the private Nixon as being candid. But in some sense, we see the true Nixon come out in public, in some sense, those that sentimentalize Nixon, who's who's trying to connect with the American people, those needs that he has, are even um, more parents, seemingly when he steps on steps on the public stage so that we, so that it, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a challenge and it it's not something to be, I think, flattened out that there is one singular Nixon, that there is one single personality that, that you see a cognitive dissonance in Nixon like you do in, um, in in anyone in, in in yourself, that there you have multiple desires, you have multiple um, uh, uh, <clears throat> challenges that you're trying to grapple with. You have you have multiple reasons of what you want to do, and they, there is no real singular self. And I don't think that that we're going to come up with a real singular Nixon because I, I think one fold there is no singular Nixon, but on the other side. I think he's hiding himself. I think that there's a reason that it's been so difficult. I think that he is still like he did during his presidency, running away, fleeing to that executive office building so that we can't quite see the true Nixon behind that mask.
0: Well, Zach, we've taken up a lot of your time. Uh, thanks so much for being on the show. It's been great to, to talk to you about your book and also to get into the, the psyche and the emotions of Richard Nixon. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on now?
1: That's a good question. I've uh, thrown myself into teaching right now, but I'm I'm looking at um, still developing these questions of emotional history of, of how much we can tell. The, It's it's an interesting challenge because when we deal with other people, we can never quite tell what they're feeling. What we see is expressions of what they're feeling. We don't see, oh, do they feel angry? We see that they seem to express anger. We see someone handshaking or someone glaring. And the question is, can the historian actually – actually note what the person is feeling, or can they just see these expressions of feeling? So um, what I've been working on and kind of batting around is looking at the Barry Goldwater rule, and this question of whether we can um, look into personalities of individuals and famous individuals and and trying to historicize that, not just trying to say, oh, is this uh, right or wrong, but trying to say, How did that develop? How did we come to believe in the Barry Goldwater rule and this belief for a long time that we couldn't analyze our subjects? And then how it fell apart with Trump and how, despite all of the cautions, how much um, of Trump's psyche has been analyzed in ways that we would have been cautious to do with other leaders. Why is it that Trump presents this tantalizing case that people just can't resist um, um, uh, presenting their theories on his personality while we would feel so much more cautious with with other figures?
0: Well, it's definitely an an intriguing uh, avenue of research, uh, getting into people's emotions and um, presidential emotions in particular continue to to drive a lot of scholarship. Uh, but again, thanks so much for being on the show. It was great to have you here.
1: Thanks so much, Andrew. It's, it's my pleasure. It's good talking.